During World War II, the New Zealand government commissioned three top-secret military tunnels to be built. Fort Stony Batter on Waiheke Island, Whangaparaua Peninsula and Wrights Hill in Wellington. Well, Fort Stony Batter was the largest, with 1.2 kilometres of subterranean passages, which are now open for tours and art exhibitions and music events. These were built all around the same time the RMS Niagara sank in the Hauraki Gulf from a German maritime mine laid by the German ship the Orion. You can imagine how felt, how close it all felt at that time in World War II. Well, to take us back there, I'm joined by Heritage and Archaeological Manager Timothy Moon. Hi, Timothy. Oh, tenakwe. How are you, Jesse? Oh, tenakwe. Some great stories here and probably some pretty scary stories for people who were in New Zealand at the time. Um, people in 2023 might not realise how close we felt to that war. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think in, uh, in researching this project, we've really become to understand that New Zealand was absolutely at threat and there was a high level of motivation and uh, coastal watch, uh, communities throughout Northland and around, around the rest of New Zealand actually preparing uh, for potential invasion. Yeah, so how were we preparing? Tell us a bit about the work being done here in New Zealand. And I mentioned Germany, but it was, it was Japan we were worried about too. Yes, exactly. So we had, we had both of those threats in our, in our back door. But essentially, the, the background is that in 1937, our cabinet was considering uh, coastal defence. That was deferred purely because of the, the cost of it. Uh, then we sort of cranked forward to um, 1941, 7th of December, Pearl Harbour is attacked. Uh, our cabinet had a meeting the very next day and declared hostilities with Japan. So in 1942, coastal defence complexes were commissioned. And as you said, there were three uh, giant facilities built uh, to protect the Horaki Gulf and the approaches to Wellington Harbour. Uh, and uh, it was a huge investment, a huge investment of infrastructure, uh, but the threat was real. What are they like, these tunnels? And I know you've been mostly involved in the restoration of Fort Stony Batter. How much has it taken to get them to the point they can actually be accessed? Yeah, well, uh, they're actually in absolutely remarkable condition. The military designed a huge amount of redundancy into everything. You know, everything needs to be fail-safe. So they were built to withstand uh, incoming bombs. Uh, so they're highly preserved. Uh, yes, I'm in a really fortunate position. There was a community group on Waiheke Island that essentially saved these tunnels in the early 2000s. They were then closed for a very long period of time. So my process has really been a lot of uh, cosmetic work, cleaning out drains and removing tens of tons of rubbish that had accumulated over the years. Uh, what we offer is we have uh, 1.2 kilometres of tunnels and 13 chambers and our kaupapa is preservation, restoration and engagement. So it's all about offering a heritage experience and connecting that to New Zealand history so that people leave uh, interested and informed. Has it been a worthwhile project from your point of view? It's been an absolutely fabulous project. It's, uh, it is very complicated and, of course, it's a Heritage One structure, so it's afforded the highest level of statutory protection in New Zealand. So we're very, very careful about everything we do there that we do not affect the heritage fabric. Can you tell, take us inside? What is it like when you're actually in there? Yeah, well, you're actually entering a tunnel system that's extremely well ventilated and, as I said, in a high state of, uh, of structural integrity. There's no collapsing, no deterioration in the concrete throughout the entire complex, which is quite extraordinary in itself from an engineering point of view. It's really well ventilated. 
parts of the tunnels have lighting systems and parts of the tunnels don't, so visitors get a bit of an experience. But eventually they disappear seven stories underground, so it's an oh my gosh. massive conflict. Yes. And then that sort of brings us through to the, the Niagara story, because in researching this, we were writing the guiding narrative and the information that's shared with visitors, and that really is, it was it really highlighted the fact that we had uh, uh, German ship sails in the Horeki Gulf laying traps, and we had Japanese submarines here doing reconnaissance and repairing their invasion strategy. So things were, were very much getting real. Oh, I'll say they were. And, and I must admit, from the um, benefit of living 60 years later, it's easy to assume that people were panicking or overreacting. But that's incredible, incredible to me. Can you tell me a bit about the RMS Niagara? Yeah, yes, I will. I'll, I'll, I will. There's basically been essentially two acts of war against New Zealand. One was, of course, the sinking of the Rainbow Warrior, where we had a, a foreign a foreign power commit and you know, blow up a ship in the Auckland wharves. And then uh, in 19, 1940, in May 1940, we had a German raider called the Orion that had sailed from the Port Kiel in northern Germany. It was actually a heavily armed ship that was disguised to look like a um, a Dutch freighter, so it had sort of follies on the deck, timber structure to make it look as though it was a trader. Uh, it laid 228 maritime mines between Great Barrier Island, Altea, and the Hen and Chickens, or roughly towards uh, Whangarei Heads. And then on the 20th of May, the Niagara was sailing from Australia to Auckland on passage to Vancouver. And this was an extremely luxurious ocean liner. It was considered to be one of the most luxurious ocean liners of its time. It had done this passage about 180 times before and clocked up the most maritime miles of um, uh, nautical miles of, of any ship. It was, it was quite a remarkable vessel. Uh, arrived into Auckland, took its Auckland passengers, additional freight, uh, left Auckland at 11.30 that night under a lot of fanfare. These, these events were, were big, big social events or public events and uh, struck a mine um, as it was leaving the Horaki Gulf at 3.30 in the morning. Gosh. Now, um, the mine uh, hit, the, hit the bow, uh, or the bow hit the mine, uh, it lifted the front of the ship out of the water, uh, abandoned ship orders, everybody was evacuated, there were ample life rafts, and being on the Horaki Gulf, there was a lot of um, access to, to, to other vessels to assist in the recovery or the... Uh, the, the, and then uh, no loss of life. So that was the key thing about it. It was quite remarkable. Uh, everybody was saved. Ship was sinking as it went down, and uh, subsequent testimony, a second explosion was heard, and it appears as though it hit another mine on its, bow, on its uh, stern as it was going down. So that wreck is now sitting in uh, 400 feet of water, so it's quite deep. But the point is that we were really concerned about the potential ecological problems that it presents. We have a 100-year-old um, ship. It was launched in 1912, 110-year-old ship, sitting on the bottom of the ocean for 80 years, and it appears as though it's holding around about 1,500 to 1,600 tonnes of diesel oil on it. So it poses an ecological disaster, and that's really the uh, point that we're wanting to raise, raise public awareness on, and, uh, and implement a salvage operation. 82, 83 years later? 83 years later. So it's 
it's essentially a tin can on the bottom of the ocean rusting. Now, so, of course, the, the question is we need to undertake a technological survey to assess the integrity of the wreck and the hull. Uh, we need to estimate what residuals are in the fuel bunkers. We need to assess the ecological threats and develop a response plan to stabilise the hull and extract the oil. The best outcome, of course, would be to identify that there's very little oil on it. But um, on the balance of probabilities, it probably has a lot of oil on it. It was on a, on a huge passage uh, going from Sydney to Auckland to Vancouver. So its oil bunkers were looking pretty well full. Whereabouts is it exactly? Uh, it's sitting, the, the exact coordinates are available on maritime maps because it's a no-anchor area. Uh, it's surrounded by some important telecommunication cables, uh, but it's sitting sitting in 400, 400 feet of water in the Horeki Gulf toward, towards Whangarei Heads. Uh-huh. Um, this might be ringing some bells for people who listen to the Detail podcast that did an episode about it in June. Is it true there might be some gold on board? Yeah, well, this this ship was quite remarkable. So, uh, in ad- in addition to um, carrying passengers, it actually on this particular occasion had a very top secret cargo. It's uh, in Sydney. Its strong room was loaded up with uh, 590 bars of gold. The gold was being uh, sent to the United States on instruction of Great Britain uh, to contribute towards the war effort. So when it went down, it had this incredibly valuable cargo on, which belongs to uh, the United Kingdom Treasury. A salvage operation was undertaken under very, very difficult situations in 1941, and again a second attempt in 1953. The majority of it was recovered, but there are five bars unaccounted for, and these uh, these ingots are 400-ounce ingots, so it's about 2,000 ounces of gold unaccounted for. That's plenty of gold, eh? That's plenty of gold. On on current market value, it's probably about $8 million. <laughs> but there are, there are other aspects to this. Generally speaking, shipwreck gold is worth 10 times market value because it has an important provenance to it, a, a whole story to it. Uh, so, you know, potentially this, is, this, this could be 30 to $80 million worth of gold. However, what we're really wanting to do here is that the gold is secondary. Uh, it's about uh, uh, assessing the oil threat to save the Hauraki Gulf from further degradation because the Hauraki Gulf is under a, a lot of threats at the moment in terms of uh, biodiversity, fish stocks and so forth. Then um, if, if, we are, if we do move to the second stage of gold recovery and we have technologies available to us to uh, locate that, uh, we would look to claim that on behalf of New Zealand as uh, as national treasure, as heritage treasure, and we would look to uh, deposit that with the National Museum and have various covenants over it, etc., so it can never ever be sold and be displayed. Can, can you, some people will remember the Rena disaster. I mean, how does the amount of oil that could be on this ship, man, we're covering a lot in this interview, how would the amount of oil on this ship compare to, say, the Rena? Yeah, yeah, it's excellent comparison. Uh, the Rena's disaster was approximately 350 tonnes of diesel oil or heavy oil. Uh, this ship has, we estimate, about 1,500 tonnes, so it's substantially more. And interestingly enough, the Rena disaster cost about $34 million in cleanup. 
expenses or cleanup costs. So this would proportionally be just substantially greater than that. So it's really a question of uh, it's better to spend some money now and identify is there a risk, is there not a risk? If there is a risk, how do we remedy or mitigate that risk? Uh, and what measures do we put in place to protect the harbour? There, there, there's two parts to that. One is the financial cost. Uh, but really, once you have an ecological problem like this, you have ongoing issues in the environment for a long time. So it really should be avoided. And that's the platform. That's where we're at at the moment. We're uh, wanting to uh, raise the awareness amongst the general public so people can be a little bit uh, interested and engaged about this. We also want to attract attention of, of politicians because ultimately this is a, a crown responsibility. And there is also... Uh, communication with uh, the German government over reparations. This was an act of war. Uh, they need to come to the party and assist in the clean-up, probably in terms of the financial compensation. Lots of uh, interesting messages coming in. Uh, we could go all afternoon on this. Um, have you got a quick, <laughs> quick moment to talk about the Niagara cat? Do you know anything about the cat? The cat. <laughs> Apparently oh, the only fatality, a five-year-old <laughs> grey and white long-haired Tom called Aussie. That's exactly right, and they couldn't find it afterwards. However, yeah. a few days later, I'm, I'm doing what a radio announcer should never do, and I'm reading from Wikipedia. A few days later, residents of Horohora in Whangarei, Horohora, Whangarei, claimed that a cat answering Aussie's description came ashore in a piece of driftwood. <laughs> well, that does sound like a myth, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Look, this is, this is very much like the Titanic story. There's a wonderful book written by a, um, a deep-sea explorer by the name of Keith Gordon. He's a New Zealander uh, called Deepwater Gold. Uh, it's a very vivid story. Uh, it is much like the uh, James Cameron Titanic in, in terms of the human interest sides of it. And uh, I'd encourage people to research that book and, and pick up some of the background as to what was really going on. But we also had the Japanese here. So 1940 was the uh, attack by the Germans laying their traps. Uh, you know, they were fighting a war in Western Europe, but they still had resources to come down here into the South Pacific and disrupt shipping. Uh, the key point is, uh, did they have intelligence to the cargo on this ship? Or was it purely coincidence that they took this ship out? Uh, so that's, a, that's an interesting question. And then a year later, in uh, June, July 1941, a fleet of six Japanese submarines just parked off the coast of New Zealand, and they assembled a light uh, aircraft, amphibious aircraft, flew into Auckland, photographed all the strategic parts of downtown Oh, my Auckland. gosh. Yes, Timothy, we're going to have to get you back for this, I think. Oh, this, is, this is great stuff, great stuff. And a few people messaging me wanting to acknowledge a, um, uh, the efforts of Sue Pauly on Waiheke Island, who was one of Absolutely. the original restorers of Stony Batter, who I'm sure you're happy to pay tribute to as well. Thank you for your time today. Great history yeah. lesson. Cheers, mate. Ciao, ciao. Timothy Moon on Fort Stony Batter, Batter, these um, subterranean passages on Waiheke Island and also the story of the RMS Niagara.